0: privilege to to do a lot of reading, uh, Lynn and I got away just before Christmas, just before our last service together, and uh had three days of just in the middle of nowhere, reading a couple books was, was wonderful and beautiful, then over Christmas a few more. One of those books I haven't completed, but I've been in the midst of, is by Rebecca McLaughlin, um, Confronting Christianity is the title of the book and she has 12 different chapters on 12 different things that she says Christianity needs actually to answer and one of those chapters is on slavery. A profound uh, little chapter she talks about in that book. She says Bible is often accused of endorsing slavery. And it certainly speaks of that slavery there should be some parameters around slavery so it sounds like slavery is okay as long as Uh, The Bible speaks about obeying slaves, obeying their masters. There's a command that Paul gives. And so it seems like slavery must be okay if you just read the surface of it. Historically, there are those who've called themselves Christians who have been very involved in uh, the slave trade or the purchasing and owning of slaves. Some of them, I think, uh, very much called themselves Christians, but in every way acted and functioned like they weren't Christians. But if we're honest, there are some of our great leaders in the church in past history, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, who actually owned slaves. Or, um, and what do we do with that? These are good questions that the church, I think, needs to have good answers to. Now, Rebecca McLaughlin also says um, it's interesting that throughout the history of the church, slaves have been drawn to Christianity the early church, half of the early church probably was filled with slaves. We know from extra-biblical sources that slaves often uh, held positions of authority within the church. And so you had slaves and slave owners worshiping God together back in the New Testament era. Not that the New Testament church had everything together and and had everything right. No church had it right. Um, Most of the letters of the church speak very clearly that every church had issues that they had to deal with. That should be stuck in the back of our mind when we think of community grace as well. We have not arrived, <laughs> and we never will arrive. But in light of that, she she reminds us that uh, in her book that some of the greatest leaders when it comes to abolishing the slave trade and later the American Civil Rights Movement uh, actually came out of the church. So you got William Wilberforce in England, but how about the one former slave, uh, Frederick Douglass, uh and then later Martin Luther King in the civil rights era. These were individuals who believed in the word of God. There's one paragraph in her book that is actually quite I think brilliant and stunning. This is what she says, "Why Why did so many slaves come to the church? Why did so many come to Christ? Throughout history and even in today's world. And she says the New Testament cuts the legs out from under slavery. She says Jesus inhabited the role of a slave. His death on the cross. was was, uh, That is a death of a slave. A citizen couldn't die in that way. Paul calls himself a slave of Christ over and over and over again. The Apostle Paul, in the the chapter I'm about to read, he, 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 he loves a runaway slave as his very heart, he says. And the Apostle Paul insists that slaves and free are equal in Christ. And so Rebecca McLaughlin in her book says, with no room for superiority or exploitation or coercion but rather brotherhood and a and a very shared cleared shared identity the new testament creates a teutonic tension that would ultimately erupt in the abolition of slavery and already back in the 4th century we already see uh, leaders of the church speaking out against slavery it's quite fascinating Now, I speak to Community Grace, not that I think any of us are struggling with uh, whether slavery is okay or not. But I I speak to Community Grace because I think the letter in Philemon that speaks to to slavery also speaks to things that we deal with and struggle with this morning and today and and will struggle with in 2020. Apostle Paul speaks of loving one another, partnering with one another, relating with one another in such a way that uh, um, I, I don't think we've achieved that. Not the way Paul speaks of it. And I pray that we would grow in noticeable ways in 2020 when it comes to some of the things that the Apostle Paul speaks to Philemon about. Allow me to read it, all 25 verses. The Apostle Paul, Paul a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Naphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart, I would especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you, of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother. I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And o Lord teach us your word. Amen. Hmm. This is a crazy little book. Crazy little letter. In many ways, it's a typical first century letter. It begins with a greeting. Uh, Paul's greetings are usually a little bit more extended. This one's no different. You'll notice there's a lot of people involved in even in that greeting. Timothy's with Paul. Seems like Paul's doing the writing, but Timothy's with them. He's writing to Philemon, but notice he's also writing to Aphia and Archippus. We don't know who they are. Some think Ephesia might be uh, Philemon's wife and Archippus' son, but that's just a guesstimation, if there is such a thing. But notice he's also writing to the church in their house. So Paul, uh, Philemon has a church. Philemon's probably a man with money. The early church, most of the early church met in homes. The church this side would have been really big. In the early church, in most places, they would have gathered in his home, and it was expected that Philemon would not only read this personally but read it to his church family as i as I read that paul paul constantly is, is he's a people person when we were going through romans um, and in different other 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 different contexts i I brought your attention to Romans chapter the last chapter in romans I think there's twenty six different names of Paul. Lists in there to say, would you say hello to? Have you ever read a letter where it stops and says and mentions twenty six different names and say, would you greet them, say hi to them? Like the apostle Paul is uh, is it's, it's probably one of the most relational characters in all of Scripture, probably outside of Christ. Like it, it's astounding. Now notice Paul typically when he writes a letter he says Paul, something to the effect of Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Notice he doesn't start with his apostleship. He usually does that to to articulate hey I'm coming to you with some authority. Paul doesn't do that here. He, He starts off by saying Paul a prisoner for Christ Jesus. That's not unusual but it's interesting that that's the only way he defines himself in this letter. He's not speaking from a position of uh, comfort, but he's speaking from a position of uh, lowliness, and he's not a prisoner of Caesar, which was the re- which was true. But he was a prisoner in his mind for Christ. And that's a greeting. There's more we could say there, but notice in verses four down to seven, uh, the typical first century letter would have a moment of thanksgiving. Again, Paul would often uh, exaggerate these and grow them uh, more than, s- than a lot of the early uh, first century letters. But uh, um, sometimes you might read these things and go, Paul's probably trying to butter them up before he gets to the appeal. B- but understand, Paul's not that way. Paul's pretty honest, pretty blunt, and there are, there are occasions, uh, Galatians is one letter in point, where he had nothing good to say, so he didn't say nothing good. So if Paul had nothing good to say about Philemon, he wouldn't have said anything. He's just being honest here. In verse 4, he says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. And and again, I brought this up back in the summer when we were going through that series on prayer, but Paul is constantly bringing to his attention, bringing to his remembrance, individuals that he has ministered to. And he brings their name up before God and he prays for them by name and specifically. And I read this and I go, Lord, that needs to become my way of praying more and more and more and more. You think of, this is near the end of Paul's life. You think of all the places he has been, all the churches that he has started, and he's remembering and recalling different individuals. He's asking about them when he, when he comes across people. He had never been to Rome, and he lists 26 names of people who were there. And these are the people he's praying for. And now he's praying for Philemon, who he's probably never been to his hometown. We're not sure. He may have been. But it seems like Philemon probably was saved in, under his ministry in, um, in in Ephesus. But regardless, the Apostle Paul Remembers him and he thanks God for him and well, how does he thank God? Verse five, he thanks God because of his love and his faith. Paul uses this language often. He prays, praises and thanks God for their love and their faith, but he usually flips them around. He usually says, "I thank God for your faith," and then he talks about their love for the saints. So their love for the saints flows out of their faith, their faith in Christ. For whatever reason, he flipped these things around, and it might be significant because he's actually going to call on Philemon to love Onesimus in a way that's actually. Radical. I hear of your love and of faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus. Now we also know that Paul actually experienced that love, verse 7, but he's also hearing of that love. In other words, if he's hearing of the love, that means that means Philemon is doing things in his life that shows that he loves the saints. He's not saying, I hear that you have a gushy feeling for the people around you, for the saints in Christ. He's saying, I'm hearing that you are actively engaged in the lives of the people of God to such an extent that they can see that you love them. And I'm hearing that. But not only is he hearing that he loves them, but he's hearing that he has a genuine faith a belief in Christ. Of course, that even should be evident in the way we live our life. The Apostle Paul says, I'm hearing of that. And then in verse 6, verse 6 is actually quite tricky to translate, and some translations are are slightly different. I'll, I'll get to that, but it's an important verse. This is how he now prays. Not only does he thank God for Philemon, but now he's praying for Philemon. And I think it speaks to how we ought to pray for one another. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. On the surface, it looks like he's saying, I'm praying that as you tell others about Jesus, that that would become more effective. But if you have different translations, different translations will say it differently, but the problem is the word that he uses for sharing is the word koinonia, which is a Greek word that we usually translate fellowship. He's talking about this fellowship of your faith. What does he mean there? The the Greek word koinonia, I've said this before, I'll say it again, is a business term in the first century. And so... It would be the idea you are sharing or you are partnering with one another or you, or you are in a fellowship with one another. Uh, you're on, on a mission together. So if Fred and Wilma decided to get together and start a business and Fred said, you know what, I've got this incredible idea of how to make widgets and Wilma comes along and says, you know what? I've got all kinds of money to finance this thing. Let's pool our gifts, our resources, our brain power together, and together we will form a fellowship, a koinonia, a partnering, a sharing together to build widgets, and we'll make all kinds of money. That's our goal. When Paul uses the term, he says we're going to take our gifts and our abilities and our talents and our resources and all of that, and we're going to pool it together, and we're going to do that to, to, to proclaim the name of Jesus, to get, to get the gospel out to the world. And together we're, we're in fellowship. So fellowship is not having a cup of coffee with one another and, and talking about Jesus. That can be part of it, but it, there's this kind of missionary sharing, pooling together. We're on a mission together and Paul is saying I pray that the sharing of your faith the the um the the pooling of your resources the the fellowship that you have with one another because of your faith that it would become more effective now he's also speaking become more effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ he says I want you to understand what this should look like but I pray, and it becomes even more effective, so that it actually goes, puts into be put put into action. Does that make sense? Any of that makes sense? I, I said a lot of words there, okay. But help me out. Did, did 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 that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. The rest of you have blank stares, and it didn't make sense. I'm sorry. I'll try to figure it out. But the Church of God. Is called to get the gospel, community grace, Let's put it that way, community grace, we're called to get the good news out to the people we encounter. We're called to get the good news out to this neighborhood, but also to the neighborhoods that you and I live in. We're called to get the gospel out to the city. We're called to get the good news of Jesus out to this province and to this country and to the world. Now, obviously, we're not alone. There's churches literally across the world that's all doing the same thing hopefully but but Paul is praying to Philemon and praying to us that we would that we would grow in our ability to do that but but part of that is going to how we function and relate together is going to be part of that as we're going to see. And so really Paul in verse 6 is praying for for that that his appeal that he's going to make in verse 17 He's praying that it'll actually materialize in the life of Philemon. Okay? Let's carry on. Notice in his thanksgiving, he's thanking God. He's praying for this man. Then in verse 7, he says, I've derived much joy and comfort from your love. We don't know what that is. We do know at the end of the letter, verse 22, he says, I, I want to come to be with you. I, I'm looking forward to be coming back and seeing you again. Uh, would you prepare a room for me? Would you open up your house and let me stay there? Back then, that wasn't usually one night. That was an extended stay. And so that's one way that uh, Paul probably was, ha- maybe, maybe one way that Paul s- received much joy and comfort from him. But he also says, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Uh, It seems like as he's been listening to all these things of his love for the saints and his faith in Christ, uh, uh, Paul is being refreshed. You know what? Every time one of my kids do something that is pleasing to the Lord, my heart's refreshed. It's like, yeah, that's good. When I hear good things going on in our church family, I go, oh, Lord, thank you. I'm refreshed. Um, just, just 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 two weeks ago, uh, Lynn and I went to a, a party, and uh, um, a fellow brother, not from this church, uh, pulled me aside. Uh, we were talking, and in our conversation, he asked, <laughs> "Where is that? What things? How things were going?" And uh, he says, "Hey, come with me." And I was like, "Come with?" Like, what, what? And he says, "Don't no, just come over here." And we just went over in the corner while the whole party was going on. He put his arm around me. And he prayed specifically for me, and and I just stood there, and I and I think I turned into a little baby because I just started crying, weeping, that this brother would care enough refresh my heart by praying for me. There's so many different ways that we can refresh one's heart. Um, a- as a church, uh, right after the service, uh, um, I'm sorry, I was supposed to announce this. <laughs> I'll announce it now. <laughs> we're we're gonna have a meeting. Everyone's welcome. This is your church family. Please, please be here. The members are going to need to speak into it, but we're going to have a short meeting about the budget of moving forward. Now, most of you know that um, um, Community Grace has been going, okay, how do we move forward? Where are we at financially? Things look pretty bleak not too long ago. Um, We still need to make changes, but uh, um, uh, Tom reported just yesterday that in the last quarter, I think it was $38,000 came in, much of that from outside. That's astounding. Most of that came in November and December. Well, three weeks ago, I, I, um, I, I was kind of I came to church, and there's we have a little mail slot back there, and I grabbed our church mail, and, and there was a letter, so I opened it up, and it was a dear friend from mine from down in southern Alberta, it was never given to this church, and there was a little note and says for pastoral support, and so I saw it because I opened up the letter. I didn't know what was in it, and it was a check for $1,000, and I said, to Tom here threw it in the offering plate. The same day, somebody not from this church slipped me a check and says, here, this is for your budget for the coming year. I don't think they ever gave. I don't know. I don't know, but it's just like I don't know what that m- number was, but it was just st- like God has been so gracious, and those things refresh your heart. There's so many ways we refresh each other's hearts. Sometimes it's an encouraging word. Sometimes it's hospitality. The Apostle Paul says, I've heard of the way you've done that for many in the, in the church. And really he's praying that that would increase. he would become even more effective. Now in, in verses 8 through probably the end of 20, maybe the end of 22, we get into the, the body of the letter. This is kind of the, the substance of the letter although there's already been a lot of substance. But he doesn't get to his request till verse 17. But he says a lot in these earlier verses, and we need to walk through it uh, somewhat quickly, but uh, carefully as well. Uh, Verse uh, verse 8, notice. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer, prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus. What he's saying there is, he says, I am an apostle. I have been sent out by Christ. I have the authority to tell you this is what you must do. He says that in other places. 1 Corinthians, if you want to go there, 14, verse 37 to 38. That's what he does to the Corinthians. But in this context, he says, you know what? I'd rather just appeal to you. I'd rather you make a decision just because you want to. Because you know it's right. I'm appealing to you for love's sake. That's what Paul's doing there. And what is he appealing? He says, I'm appealing to you on behalf of this person, Onesimus. This is the first time we meet his name in the, in the scriptures. Onesimus means useful. Many say slaves in the early church were named Onesimus. They were useful. Onesimus, we don't know the details of how he came encountered with the Apostle Paul. Paul's probably in Rome. But it seems like Onesimus somehow fled or ran away from Philemon. It seems to suggest that he actually stole something so he could pay for his journey. And then in an act of providence, he comes he encounters the Apostle Paul and Paul says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. Did you listen to the language. He calls him his child. He says, I'm his father. He says, I'm sending out my very heart. Paul loves Onesimus. Typically, when Paul calls someone a child, it means that the Apostle Paul has actually shared Christ with that person, and that person has turned in faith to Christ. Often when he uses the language of father, he's speaking of he's the older man in this relationship and he is discipling, mentoring, training, helping this person, apprenticing this person to become more Christ-like. There is a sweet relationship between Paul and Onesimus, and that's all we seem to know. The Apostle Paul says, In sending him back to you, I'm sending my very heart. This is going to tear, rip something out of me. I'm going to miss him. It seems from verse 13 that that Onesimus actually served Paul and cared for some of Paul's personal needs while he was in prison. Paul will miss this man. Paul says in verse 11, formerly he was useless to you probably referring to the fact that he ran away and stole something from him. But he says now he is indeed useful to you and to me. His life has been changed. And yet Paul is sending him back. He says in verse 14, I prefer to do nothing without your consent. In order that your goodness might not be By compulsion, but of your own accord, he wanted his goodness just to flow. He wanted Philemon's goodness to be able just to pour out, to be become evident. Verse fifteen, he speaks of God's providence even in the whole situation. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while. It's almost as he's suggesting, um, "Yeah, I know Onesimus ran away from you, and this is this is almost like Joseph saying." Man meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Somehow in God's sovereignty, God's providence, God has, has set this up in such a manner, in such a way, that this is actually going to turn out for what is good. For This perhaps is why he's parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Did you at least listen to that language? You might take him back forever. But this time in verse 16, not as a slave... But as a brother. Some of your translations will say bond servant there. I think the better translation is literally slave. No longer as a slave, but more importantly, more but as a brother, but a beloved brother, a loved brother. Do you see how the gospel transforms everything? even our relationships. So here's the Apostle Paul with all the authority that comes with being an apostle sent up by God, commissioned by God. Here's the message. You are laying the groundwork that all the church throughout the rest of history will be devoted to your teaching. You have the authority to command this man to to do something, but you are not. He's not doing it. He's appealing to him in love. That same That same Paul, with all of that authority, treats Onesimus, who is a runaway slave, as a child, as a father. He treats him as his father. He treats him as a beloved fellow worker. He writes to Philemon, who is a a landowner and has shared his love in so many different ways that it becomes really obvious. And he says, I want you to treat the one that has taken from you and run away from you, and I would a- ask you no longer to receive him forever as a servant or slave, but receive him as your brother, that b- a beloved brother. Not only, not only the brother that you just have to live with, but the brother that you love. Whoa. The gospel is radical. Radical. And and the Apostle Paul doesn't smash uh, slavery in the face, but he, he cuts his legs out from under it, doesn't he? And saying, even though you have authority, he says, you treat people as equals. Oh. After all of that, verse 17, now he gets to his request to Philemon. He's set the groundwork, and then he says, so if you consider me your partner, in other words, the same word, the koinonia, we're together in this for the gospel, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Remember the room I'm going to, well, he hasn't asked for it yet, but the room that I'm going to get someday when I come to visit you, he says, the way that I would like you to receive him as you would receive me. He gets the guest room. Isn't that how the the father welcomes a prodigal son? Isn't that how the father has welcomed us? Isn't that how we are to welcome one another? Now, Paul even gets even further in this. He goes, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. In the first century, if you were a slave that was caught that had run away, uh, there was all kinds of things that the the owner could legally do to you. One was break your joints. I think Paul is saying, if he owes you anything, I'll I'll take that on. <laughs> Paul loves this guy. But really, I'm hoping that you actually receive him as you would receive me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I'll repay it. Oh, by the way, it says nothing of you owing me even your own self because it seems like Paul actually shared Christ with Philemon. Philemon is a Christian and and, and is, has forever in, in the presence of God because of Paul. But I'll pay it, Paul says. Yes, brother. I want some benefit in you, and the Lord refresh my heart in Christ. Paul says, if if you receive him as you would receive me, you would refresh my heart. And Paul closes with some things. He's confident that this Philemon will be obedient, verse 21. Verse 22, he says, I'm hoping to come to see you. Would you prepare a room for me? And then as Paul often does, he closes off with a bunch of greetings and and a bunch of greetings from vi- different individuals that were with him. And then says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Isn't that a beautiful, powerful letter? Not that many years ago, there was a letter that came across uh, some uh, historians uh, that was written by Ronald Reagan while he was governor of California. So this was prior to him being the president of the United States. And especially down in the states, it's hard to know if if those presidents have a genuine faith or not. Like everyone says, "God bless America." Everyone says we should pray. Everyone, uh, will like everyone, has the language, and so you're always wondering. But this letter that they found of um, Ronald Reagan was a letter as while he was governor that he wrote to his father-in-law, who was an atheist. Uh, you can Google it; you can find it online. It's a powerful little letter. And, you, and as you read this letter, he just goes, oh, my goodness. Uh, at that point, uh, Ronald Reagan, it seemed like he had a genuine faith, but it was very, a very, um, it seemed like a young faith. It wasn't really real shaped and hammered out yet. Uh, and he uses the, uh, the logic of C.S. Lewis of liar, lunatic, or um, lord, and he uses that language to try to convince his father-in-law, but it's just an incredible loving letter for his father-in-law to consider Christ. <laughs> it was just an astounding letter. And, and so as, you, as I read that letter, I kind of got, got to peer into the heart of Ronald Reagan in a way that you don't in most of his public speeches, etc. In a similar way, as I read this letter by Paul to Philemon, I get to peer into his heart in a way that you don't in some of the other letters. But I ask the question, as I look at this letter, and again, I don't think we're struggling with slavery as a church. But as we look around this room and we consider those who aren't in the room that are part of our church family, do we mention each other by name in our prayers? Do we? Do you? Do you lift up? Do you lift up Shinola's name? Say, Lord, I thank you for her. I thank you for the way she serves in this context, in this church family. I thank you for uh, the love that just seems to ooze from her life. And Lord, would you grow her? Um, like that's what Paul does. Sorry, picking on you. Do we know each other? Do we spend time together? Or do we just stick with the, the ones we're comfortable with? Do we refresh one another? Uh, do, y- do you put it on your bucket list? Today i got to refresh somebody in the, in the body. Do we consider ourselves equals? I mean, in, in our context, there's different education levels. There's different financial levels. There's different political interests. There's, there, we're, we're different. Like, there is no way on God's green earth that, that this group would come together other than because of Christ. But do we consider ourselves equal, not better than? And, and is that evident the way we treat one another and talk to each other? How are we partnering for the gospel? how are we pooling our resources and our gifts and our abilities some of you are very organized and very structured this church lord knows needs your your help <laughs> some of you are very hospitable some of you are mercy showers some of you some of you just you just know how to fix things some of you like how are we pulling? How can we better do that? How can we grow in that? I mean, I I, I I wish I had the answer, but I think we have the answer, with God's help. Wouldn't it be beautiful if we received a similar letter from the Apostle Paul? And then when he comes out and lives with one of you, moves into your house for a few weeks, he goes. Wow, this church that gathers together in this place, man, they love each other. And it's evident. Let me pray. Lord, we are new creations because of what you've done. Thank you. And yet we struggle and we stumble and we, we fail and we fall short and um, forgive us. But, Lord, we pray that you would, we, you would help us to grow in koinonia and fellowship and partnering in the, in, in the faith in such a way that, that uh, the world goes, man, these people share everything so that they can get the good news of Jesus out. May we treat each other like Philemon being called on to treat Onesimus who has, has wronged him. But may we treat even those who have wronged us with, with incredible grace and love. Father may we not see anyone as inferior to us but may we see each other as equals. Yes, we have different roles and yes, we have different levels of maturity, but Father, we're we're at the foot of the cross, we're the same. There's no male or female, there is no slave or free. Lord, may that be so evident when the world looks at this this little church called Community Grace. I pray that 2020 would help us become more like a Philemon church. Actually more like the church of Christ. Help us to become who we are in you. I ask these things not because I deserve them or any of us deserve these things, but because of your great love for us. In your precious name we pray.